Connecticut Democrats or Connecticrats, as they have never been called. Welcome to the CT Dems podcast. I'm Jesse Skolnick. And I'm David Kostek with the Connecticut Democratic Party. Well, we're past Labor Day, and that means we're in full-on campaign season. So we are uh, happy to be back with you. And uh, Jesse, you spoke with uh, Stephanie Thomas this week, running for Connecticut Secretary of the State. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I spoke to most of the people who are running for statewide office this year. But this is my first time chatting with Stephanie Thomas, and it was an absolute pleasure. It was everything I hoped it would be. <laughs> she's she's fantastic. Now, a uh, little little background. I actually live in Westport, which is one of the towns that she represents in the state legislature. So we were sort of greedily holding on to Stephanie here in our one in our less than one percent of the state in that little state rep district. And when she decided to run statewide, I was like, yeah, you guys are going to see what we've had all along. So uh, uh, tell me a little bit about the conversation. Well, uh, if you know anything about Stephanie Thomas, uh, she really focuses on civic education, civic engagement, and making sure that people in Connecticut are involved and informed. And that really came through in the interview. Uh, We talked a lot about just kind of the nonsense that's been going on in the country since January 6th and since the 2020 election, and how as Secretary of the State, she would handle some of the issues certain people in the state and the country have uh, with accepting elections. Uh, but she she did so with grace. And I think uh, she'd be a great person as Secretary of State to help uh, mend the divide between the two political parties. You were being very diplomatic there. You're being very <laughs> diplomatic. You can tell my age. If I was in my 20s, I probably would have spoken a little differently. But as I've entered my 40s, I try to be a little nicer. All right, fine. Speaking, speaking of... Uh, uh, very nice and thoughtful as well. I spoke with Dominique Johnson. Dominique is uh, running to serve in the seat that Stephanie is vacating here in Westport, Norwalk, um, and is a bit of a first for the CT Dems podcast. Not only did we record in person, but we did it remote. There was a festival here in Westport, uh, like a street fair kind of festival, and I just took out my phone and hit record and chatted with Dominique for a, a little bit as we walked up and down the festival. You can hear uh, the people in the background. You can hear the, the we walk by the fire station. You hear the bell ring on the fire truck. It was great. So uh, Dominique uh, talked at great length about uh, what she's learning at the doors and uh, what, what she intends to do um, when she gets up to Hartford. And hopefully this is one of many future in-person interviews. Yeah. We've been, been champing at the bit to get those done. Absolutely. So without any further ado, let's uh, turn it over to uh, Jesse's talk with Secretary of the State candidate, Stephanie Thomas. Stephanie Thomas, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, I always like to start off every show asking our guests a little bit about themselves. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and what led you to want to run for Secretary of the State? Sure. It's always a big question, so I'll try to make it fast. Um, (laughs) I grew up in New Jersey, actually, um, affluent town, poor family, great public schools, doing homework by candlelight because we might not have had electricity. Um, I went to NYU and I started working in the nonprofit sector, got my master's in nonprofit management. And while in grad school, started working for a fundraising consulting company that works with nonprofits. 
That turned into a 19-year career where I worked my way up to become company president. I later opened my own consulting company, um, which is what I was doing when politics knocked on the door. Um, like many people, I got involved after 2016. I spent some time volunteering for campaigns, doing workshops in my community, um, and long story short, I ended up running for state representative, um, and I haven't looked back. Um, uh, Secretary of the State, you know, it was nothing in my plans, uh, but when Denise uh, announced that she was retiring, it occurred to me, I'm like, oh, this sounds like the ideal job for me. It totally matches my background, my interests, my skill sets. So I decided to apply for the job and here we are. <laughs> well, I actually find the best elected officials kind of follow that path. I, I know I, I run for several uh, local offices and it's, and I, I worked in Washington, D.C. as well. And I found it's the people that didn't set out from day one that I want to be a senator. It's the people that worked hard, uh, followed their interests. And then one day woke up and said, you know what? This is a great opportunity for me. I, I think I can do this. Because those are the people I think who are doing it for the right reasons rather than trying to get power or, or prestige or things like that. So I, I'm glad to hear uh, that, that that's definitely where you're coming from. Absolutely. Yeah. And in, in a way, I've spent my entire career in public service, but just serving in the nonprofit sector. And it had never occurred to me that government is actually just sort of the mirror image to that um, on the other side. So it feels like a continuation. Well, I always uh, laugh that I, I would tell people that I was a lobbyist in Washington, D.C., but I was a nonprofit lobbyist. I go, look at my check, my, my bank account, my checkbook. It's not if I was working for like Philip Morris. And it's good when you can work in the nonprofit world because you're really fighting the good fight for something you believe in rather than it just being a job. No, absolutely. And what I've learned is that having worked as a consultant in particular, where I've worked with hundreds of different types of nonprofits, it's been a real education that I realize most people don't have access to in all the social problems. You know, when government doesn't um, shore up all of these systems, people slip through the cracks, whether it's education, healthcare, homelessness, um, or even how we treat the uh, seniors among us. So all of these people slip through the cracks, nonprofits form, and by working with nonprofits, you really learn how to solve problems on a shoestring, I will tell you that, <laughs> and, um, and, and um, what those problems are. So I'm happy to have had that foundation. So one of the biggest problems I think facing the state and the country is really just election integrity, uh, especially since January 6th. Uh, we've just seen a general distrust in government and the election process from a lot of people in America. Uh, what can the Secretary of the State do to ease those tensions, especially as the divide between the political parties just seem, seems to be uh, growing rather than coming back together? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think there are two parts to my response. You have what I'll call, um, since Joe Biden gave us this term, MAGA Republicans, right? So they are what I'll say, people who are election deniers, who believe in the big lie, who believe that Donald Trump won the 2020 presidential election. I'm not sure there's much that can be done there other than continuing to shine a light on some of the misinformation in that narrative and then voting those people out of office or never voting them in. 
But then I think there's a lot of other people where this drumbeat of these news stories of his claims make them say, oh, wait, is there something we should be paying attention to here? And those are people that um, I think you approach with civic education, you teach them about the process. Um, I think uh, as secretary of the state, being out in the community and being consistent helps to build trust and also being transparent. I think civic engagement and talking about that is really important in terms of making sure that voters are aware of who they're voting for, because most of us pay attention to president, maybe our Congress people, maybe our mayor or first selectmen. But, you know, a lot of these elections like registrar and town clerk fly under the radar. Um, and what I think is really important is that we're not electing people who are in this election denier mode, because to me, it's a false narrative. Elections, like any other process, has um, <clears throat> problems uh, that come up, problems that need tweaking, systems change, etc. But I feel like this false narrative moves us away from fixing things that actually need to be fixed, like here in Connecticut, for example, you know, making sure um, most of our registrars, for example, who administer our elections are part time. Many of them have full time other jobs or they are otherwise occupied. So making sure they're trained um, is um, can be difficult. Um, especially now, like every other industry, we saw a big wave of retirements, etc. So making sure they're trained, there's usually very little succession planning because it might be an office of one or maybe two people at the most. So like those are issues that I think are more important than talking about um, you know, like this push for very strict photo ID laws, which would not really address the problems that exist. <laughs> now, do you think do you think that election transparency will play a part in in easing people's mind? I think a, a lot of folks out there they watch the news, whether it's Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, and that's what they get through. They don't really understand the process. And we can go back to what you mentioned earlier about civic education and civic in, engagement. Uh, I know it's near and dear to your heart. Uh, I interviewed a couple weeks ago Kevin Brown, who's running for a state rep in the 56, and he's a uh, civics teacher. It's big to him. And I think back to my days as a child. I guess I followed politics when I was in high school as much as any normal high school kid, but it was my 10th grade civics class is where everything really turned around for me. It was during the Clinton impeachment, so it was a big, big news story. Yeah. Um, but that led to me moving more into the political world mentally and then later on uh, as, as employment. Um, do, do you think... Uh, opening up the process to people to help them understand what exactly happens will, will help this process. And do you think that if we get them started early on, uh, knowing how the process works, that will just strengthen the, the, that process as well? Sure. I'll answer the second question first. I think getting um, children involved early on has proven, there are studies that have proven that that is how they are most likely to become involved lifelong. You know, like any other habit, you know, if you grow up believing that this is something you should do or are supposed to do to be a good citizen, you're more likely to stick with it. 
Um, but for me, I think it's about, you know, definitely children make sense, but I also don't want to leave the adults out <laughs> um, because we have a lot of adults too, <laughs> who also either went to school at a time when civics had been removed in its entirety or, you know, like now where they might have like half a credit or, you know, um, just a very small module. Um, I spoke to a 19 year old a couple of weeks ago and she was like, you know, I did have a little bit of civics in school. She was like, but mm, I was 17. I didn't really care then. <laughs> so we need a way to keep enforcing it as people go um, along. And I think we have a few types of problems that we need to address. Many people read the national news, um, so they often uh, mistake, or maybe not often, they sometimes mistake issues that are national with what's actually happening here in the state. Then we also have this sort of arcane, sort of legalese um, language around elections that unless you're really motivated to understand it, you know, you go to the website and you're like, what? Like, I don't get it. It might be too much to bother with. And it's also difficult because every state is different. And also here in Connecticut, many towns have like slightly differing ways they handle things. Like I know when I first moved to Connecticut, I was waiting to get my mailer that would explain to me what's on the ballot, the pros and cons of any ballot questions, because that's what I had gotten. And then I kept waiting and it never came. So we have to educate people um, in general about what makes sense for them in their state so they don't make some of these mistakes. We have to translate things into plain English. We definitely need to translate things into other languages as well. Um, I've talked a lot about you know, simple things like let's have a Secretary of the State YouTube channel. Let's have downloadable toolkits. So whether you're a student body president or, you know, a local NAACP chapter or just a group of moms who want to know how to advocate for something you care about, you can go to the site, download and know how to get involved. Um, and on and on and on, like just convening election workers, et cetera. So there's a lot we can do, um, but I don't want to leave adults out of the equation. <laughs> we'll be back with more of Jesse's interview with Secretary of the State candidate Stephanie Thomas. But first, a first for the uh, Connecticut and CT Dunn podcast, we're doing a remote. It's like the old radio stations used to do remotes like in the parking lot of a uh, store that's opening or something. We're out in Westport at a community event with Dominique Johnson. She is uh, running for the seat being vacated by Stephanie Thomas. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. I appreciate it. It's great being out here today with people in Westport. Tell me what you saw here walking around. Uh, this, the event is called Slice of Saugatuck. It's the kind of thing where restaurants and uh, businesses and that kind of thing are are uh, you know open and, and people are milling around and sampling what there is to see. What do you what do you hear from voters and and what you, what you take on the slice of Saugatuck? Slice of Saugatuck is an amazing event. I came here when we first moved to Connecticut about ten years ago, and to see how like it's so well attended this year, which is great because it's for charity. I think a big part of this goes to Connecticut Food Share, um, but it's a really great way to showcase the businesses. So not just pizza, 
There's a bunch of different stuff. There's ice cream. Everybody gets a little taste of everything. And it's nice too, because it's like the firehouse. We've got the big fire engine. The kids are having a blast there. Uh, the hockey team from Staples is given this great lemonade for $5 donating for, I think it's breast cancer awareness. So it's really a community vibe. So I'm, I'm happy too, because I was here earlier with Senator Will Haskell, uh, his, uh, endorsed candidate Cece Maher for the Senate seat there uh, and Jonathan Steinberg. So the Westmore ticket was out here having a great time to get and talking to voters. And the district you're running in isn't just Westport, it's Westport and Norwalk. Um, you're a Norwalker on the Common Council. First thing I want to see is, uh, you know, moving from, well, hopefully moving from a Common <laughs> Council legislative sort of town city seat to a legislative seat. What do you see as the primary differences and what's motivating you to make the jump? Well, the motivation, I guess, you know, is is with many things timing makes things happen with stephanie stepping up for secretary of the state this is not a door i thought that would open uh but when she put her hat in the ring and not only did that but was incredibly successful it became very clear the seat would be open um she and others friends neighbors in norwalk really encouraged me to step up because they knew what i have been able to do on the council in my one term now half of almost half of a second and so I guess for me, what, what this means is I have this deep knowledge of what particularly Norwalk needs, how I've worked with the delegation in the past informs what I can do up in Hartford, because I have a, a knowledge not only of our budget, but of what that means when you have people who are strong advocates up in Hartford bringing and delivering back to the community. And it's also for Westport. I mean, the doors I've been knocking, the folks I've been talking to, there's a lot of real similarities between the Norwalkers and Westporters in this district. And I think that's really great. It's a new district. Um, and I think it's really great for both Norwalk and Westport because of that. And of course, legislating in Hartford means that you know decisions that are made there take effect you know, statewide instead of in one city. Do you think you have a sort of obligation to think about you know, how this might impact people in other communities, or is it more, you know, sort of what a representation as a representative of one place? What's how do you balance those two things? That's a really great question, because I think for me, what's so important about the work I've been doing on the council is to be there for all residents because I'm at large. I think that being at large means I have a constituency of like 90,000 people. <laughs> and so a lot of that means, you know, you that you're thinking about them when you're making decisions because they've empowered you and they've giving you that honor and that responsibility to make these decisions on their behalf. But also when you get emails and calls and texts from people, messages on social, you're there to help them get connected to the information they need, a problem they have that needs to be solved. And I think that's a great connection for this work in Hartford. Like the constituent services piece is so important to me. I want everyone to feel like you can reach out to me. I will respond to you, but also I'm accessible. The other part about the job being the legislative piece, it's a lot of power to be able to decide like, what are the laws that are going to govern our state? And I think that there's a real responsibility representing a district of, of you know, a really, like, concise group of people. <laughs> it's, it's one 151st one of exactly. the state. It's less than 1% of the state, right? Yeah. And so, what? of course, I have to think about what are my constituents, what do they need in Norwalk? So, in this case, what would the 143rd residents need? But I think that, to your point, um, I think it's about values and principles. So my values and principles would guide the decisions. Talking to constituents would guide the decisions. And I have to think that while we have a very different experience down here in Fairfield County in 143rd, as opposed to say out east in the state, these values and principles, if we use that to guide these decisions, would be something that folks in the eastern part of the state would also benefit from that. Um, you've you've got to be a representative of your district while at the same time realizing we have to create 
like a meaningful, empowering policy to help everyday folks, to help people with the issues that matter most to them everywhere in the state. And while I've never certainly been a uh, member of the legislature, I've not been a staffer, I get the impression that there's a lot of camaraderie among the caucus and across the aisle, honestly, uh, among members. So there will be people from Eastern Connecticut, from uh, Litchfield County, from uh, Hartford, Bridgeport, Waterbury, and other cities that communicate with one another and sort of, you know, lobby one another for for their constituents as well. Is that something you feel comfortable doing for uh, Norwalk and Westport? Oh, absolutely. I think that's the part that's I'm excited. Anyway, right? yeah, it Norwalk is. Norwalk Council. I, I am literally uh, on our sign. Our, it's it, What we're saying to folks is, I want to be your voice in Hartford. So that is the part of it. Like, I am going to, I'm running to be my voice for my neighbors in the 143rd. So of course I'm going to say, hey, this is what we need in Norwalk <laughs> and Westport. But I also think it's a really great opportunity to learn, well, what is the issue in Waterbury? What's the issue out in New London? Maybe there's things that we can, I'm surprised we could find some commonalities on. That's what we could work on. Um, I want to know what's going on in the rest of the states so when we make those decisions. Back to your earlier question, we're making them, and that's, I think, a way we can weigh what's happening in the rest of the state to see what's going on, what's what's on the minds of other people's constituents. You know, we have to work together to get this done. And I've heard the camaraderie is, from what I've heard, to your point, it's like, it's like there's, you know, some pretty heated debates, but then at the end of the day, people are really hanging out and having fun, which that's good because then we can get back to the next day and do it again. <laughs> so <laughs> one of my favorite moments in the last session was ridiculous where Kristen McCarthy Vahey, a representative Democrat from uh, Fairfield, uh, and I think Joe Zulo is his name in uh, East Haven, I believe it is, uh, were debating a bill that had something to do with regulations or something on dams. And so they kept saying, you know, through you, Madam Speaker, which is like the formality of the thing, you know, we'd like to ask if we're talking about the damn bill. And then the next one would say, yes, this is about the damn bill. And they kind of went back and forth for a few minutes. I have, I have a, a video of that somewhere I could maybe drop in here, but it was absolutely hilarious. Am I correct, Madam Chair, that this is the damn disclosure bill through you? Representative McCarthy Vahey. Thank you, Madam Speaker. This is the damn bill through you. Representative Zulo. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. And can you explain, uh, please explain the damn provisions that are in the bill through you, Ms. Madam Speaker? Representative McCarthy Vahey. Thank you very much, Madam Speaker. And the bill requires the damn disclosure through you. Uh, was there any testimony in opposition to uh, this damn proposal through you, Madam Speaker? Representative McCarthy Vahey. There was no damn dissension through you. So I think there are some late nights. I think there are some uh, very, very grueling sessions. And honestly, I wonder who really puts their hand up and goes to volunteer for this thing. Well, you know, I, I like that like we sometimes it sounds like folks get tired and punchy and the dad jokes yes. maybe come out. Yes. But yeah, <laughs> so but, you know, who volunteers for this? I You're right. I mean, it's why I'm doing it is because I feel like we have an opportunity to really for, for me. I, I think we have an opportunity right now in this moment to decide that our children and grandchildren's future should be created. They want to live, they should live in a future of their own creation. I don't want them to feel like, and parents right now to feel like they have to live in someone else's past that's already been decided for them. So that is to say that we're doing this so that we can pass down something to them that's even better than what we have. And that's a really, that's a really seemingly right now with how like hyper-partisan things are, that seems like a really difficult task. But for me, how I'm seeing it is like, I have a family 
where we have D's, we have U's, we have R's. I'm quite used to talking across radically different views on policies. So, hey, like, if we treat the legislature like some kind of, I don't know if it's, it feels like a family vibe based on how I'm seeing it, then, hey, then maybe we can actually get something done and not completely um, like lose sight of each other as just human beings at the end of the day. And, and the civility piece of that, maybe the joking helps, the levity helps. There's 151 representatives and 36 senators. Uh, quick math, 186. Did I add that right? Seven. 187 members of the state legislature. And there are, as far as I know, only two who identify as members of the LGBT community. Uh, uh, Jeff Curry, a uh, representative from Manchester area, and Rahab Ali Brennan from uh, Bethel. Um, you would, you would, and be joining them. And um, what what does that mean? What weight is that? Is there an additional weight for that to, to be a representative of a broader community that is frankly underrepresented in the legislature? It's interesting because you asked me why I'm doing this. And this is a secondary reason for me in the sense that um, I have been the first on my council in some way, like the first uh, openly LGBTQ woman. Um, we as you said, there are very, there's like less than maybe 2000 of us that we know of in the entire United States who are, right. I, I, we'd have to check the statistics no, no, sure, from sure, Victory but. Fund, but I, I think that they kind of try to keep track. Mm -hmm. um, but I know there are a lot more LGBTQ folks on the ballot this November, and I'm one of them. Um, sure, because when I came up, I didn't have somebody I could see to think, wow, I'd run for office one day. I know, you know, Secretary Buttigieg has totally changed that landscape for our community. Um, but I think that Anytime one of us steps up and just, you know, is a neighbor and says, I want to do this and, and, and represents additionally a constituency that is underrepresented, I think that's very powerful. So for me, again, that's just an, a part of this that I think makes it even more uh, important for me to say, like, to queer youth, to LGBTQ youth in Norwalk and Westport, like, not only do I, I'm here for you and I support you, but I want you to go further than I ever could. And maybe just maybe by me going up to Hartford and it's, you know, you see somebody who maybe you identify with in some way doing this work, it becomes a pathway for you. So that, yeah, because I've been a very passionate advocate for young people my whole life. I'm a former educator. I've done research in these areas of how we can keep schools safe for students. Um, so this is, I guess, the flip side of that is that I'm going and I could perhaps create legislation that helps our students be safe in school. I could help just be a role model in some small way. Yeah. So it's, there's a weight to it. You know, mm -hmm. when you're one of the only, you kind of are one of the only, and then there you are. But I think that I'm totally happy to, to step up for my community this way. People are saying, why do you want to do this? This seems like so much of a time commitment. Um, it's stressful, right? You're going to be away from your there family. Knocking on doors oh, about two months. A hundred degree heat, a hundred degree <laughs> heat. And at some point you're like, okay, what are my life choices? But my life choices <laughs> are that I passionately believe in the ability for us. I believe in community. I believe that when we work together, that's the way we do things. And I believe that at some point we have to see each other as neighbors and talk things out and can't lose sight of the fact that, you know, this is a small part of Connecticut. So if we can find a way to make sure that we focus on these basic things that we all need that maybe we can agree on, then maybe we can push for these harder conversations. Why I'm doing it is, is because I just, I'm in my bones. I want to give back to my community. That's kind of how I was raised to like work hard and give back. And so that's, that's what this is for me. We now return to the second half of Jesse's talk with Stephanie Thomas, 
Democratic nominee for Secretary of the State. One of the bigger problems I've seen as I've spoken to people from different towns and people who work in town halls is that there really is a big disparity in technology from town to town, what people are working with. And I really think, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on uh, what 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 role does technology play uh, in future elections and how can we bolster the technology uh, in the election process? Yeah, it's there. So technology, I think, is a big umbrella. Um, But I will say at the most basic level, one thing we have to do is make sure I firmly believe um, and I'm willing to fight for this and have been trying to lay the seeds already. If we say one of our most important responsibilities as an American citizen is to vote, and if we in the state of Connecticut agree with that, we have to make sure we are funding the towns um, to make sure that there isn't such disparity. Like we shouldn't have have and have nots when it comes to our elections. We just shouldn't. And towns right now are often left to their own devices to fund um, some of these operations. And most people don't think about what that means, but it can become politicized. So for example, we had redistricting. Um, So a lot of people voted in a different poll place um, this year than where they've been going for the last 10 years. Um, So a lot of towns um, uh, either sent out postcards or really wanted to advertise this change. Um, And um, in some places, the first selectman or mayor was sort of in opposition with this idea of expanded ballot access (laughs) so they wouldn't (laughs) give added budget to maybe take out an ad, put out some digital ads, et cetera. And, and, you know, maybe it's not nefarious, but this type of funding structure creates those um, issues. So I think we as a state should fund. But um, when it comes to technology, obviously on an operational side, we have tabulator machines that are 20 years old. A lot has changed with technology in 20 years. So new tabulators, which we will be um, moving to uh, in the short term, will come with some savings in time. So there's a lot of conversations about electronic poll books that would come with some savings in times. In time, there's also technology that will ease some of the day-to-day functions. As I'm sure you know, we passed online absentee ballot applications, uh, which it hasn't rolled out yet, but (laughs) it will. We passed automatic voter registration. Um, Reforms such as early voting and no excuse absentee voting will help not overburden the system on one day. And then on the other end of the scale, there's um, for election workers, what I'll call low hanging fruit um, uh, technology, where just uh, with um, online learning and video conferencing and YouTube, we can help them share expertise from town to town. Um, The secretary's office can share expertise with them on a much more regular basis than trying to convene twice a year, um, which I don't think is sufficient. Um, So that's a very long way of saying that there are a lot of technological (laughs) opportunities, um, and I look forward to embracing many of them. (laughs) As you mentioned, we're going to elect you in November. We're going to elect other Democrats in November, but 
you, there's more than just uh, people on the ballot uh, this fall. We also have a referendum uh, that's asking uh, Connecticut voters whether we should change our constitution to allow for early voting. What are the what are the realities of that getting passed? How, how confident are we that that's going to pass this fall? With regard to confidence, I'm confident it will pass if people people who are invested in explaining what it is win out over what I can only call as the false narrative that has been put out there. I do want to remind people that um, I know the House numbers best of all um, because I was living with this every day, but to put this constitutional amendment on the ballot passed the House with almost 50% Republican Republicans voting in favor of it, including the House Minority Leader. Um, but the narrative that has come out is um, why you should not vote for this because you don't know how long the early voting period would be. Whereas the truth is we have to vote for it if we want the legislature to even investigate it, whether you believe the early voting period should be one day, three days, two weeks, etc. It has to, we have to pass the constitutional amendment first. So I think it will pass if we get the narrative out. And I like to remind people that early voting is good for everybody. It doesn't favor any one group. It's good for people who don't know health-wise when they'll have a good day or bad day. Parents of young children. Uh, Comptroller candidate Sean Scanlon was just saying his wife was due on primary election day. So like they, they like to vote in person, so they wanted an in-person option. Um, people with busy work schedules, whether you're a small business owner like me, who sometimes never knew when an emergency would come up and I have to jump in and do every job, or um, people work multiple shifts. It's people with unreliable transportation. I was like joking about how a lot of my college friends at a certain time in my life, like their car was always breaking down. <laughs> um, you know, it's seniors, it's... Um, People who are uh, might have a problem if there's a severe weather event, um, they don't like driving in the rain or a tree fell down blocking their road. Um, so I remind people this is good. Like this is good for our mothers, fathers, grandparents, children, friends, neighbors. Like it's actually really good for the majority of people. Um, so I'm hopeful it will pass, but it's incumbent upon all of us to help spread the word. Well, when it comes to early voting and not, uh, no excuse uh, absentee voting, it usually seems to be only one party that that pushes back against that. And in my experience, uh, if you want to make it harder for people to vote, there's usually a reason why. And I, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, I want everybody to vote, whether you're a Democrat, whether you're a Republican, whether you're some other party. Uh, one of the most important things as an American is, is to be able to vote. And I want to have your voice heard. And making it, there's nothing wrong with making it easier for someone to vote. So I, I really hope that, I, I know I'll be voting uh, to pass that this fall. Yes, um, I, I have to ask you, uh, I probably should have asked earlier, uh, how's the campaign process been? I, anybody who has uh, never run for something doesn't know how tiring, how exhausting the door knocking and the phone calling and meeting people. But that's what you have to do because you have to hear what people 
uh, are interested in what they're concerned with. So how, how's the campaign process been for you so far? Thank you for commiserating with me. No, <laughs> it's funny. We just tallied up our mileage the other day because the statewide campaign is obviously very different from a district-wide state representative campaign. And we've, um, we had just passed at that time about 12,000 miles. Um, and what that means is we spend many hours every day um, driving around the state talking to people for me, I love it. I I learn by hearing what's important to people. So whether it's a voter or registrars or town clerks or business owners, because there is the business aspect of this job, um, I enjoy that. And I always get something out of every single one of those conversations. So for me, it's been going well. And I think um, Secretary of the State has garnered more attention um, so I'm gratified and scared. I'm gratified <laughs> that more people are talking about saving our democracy, um, are getting involved in our democracy, because we do have a representative form of government. So in order to be representative, we all have to be involved so that those elected know what we want. But I'm scared because I have realized the more I speak with people, how much people don't know about the process. Even, you know, people that you would consider like real insiders, um, you know, most people, some people didn't know there was a primary. They didn't know the day of the primary. Um, I remember um, someone was telling me a story about a poll worker who asked them, another poll worker, like, oh, I'm confused. How come Dick Blumenthal is not on this ballot? And it's like, oh, because he doesn't have a primary. Um, so there's just, it, but it does underscore for me how important civic education is and why I'm so committed to it. But thank you for asking. <laughs> <laughs> and and people, again, people don't understand that because election day is on November 8th this year, it's as late as it can possibly be. And that extra week is the longest week, I, I think, of, of, of our lives when, when yes. we're running for things. <laughs> um, before we get to the end of the, of the interview today, I'm interested to hear your thoughts uh, on the role of Secretary of the State, and and also how crazy that how many people say Secretary of State, and you have to correct them, Secretary of the State. Yes. But um, you are the only state <laughs> with the the, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we have to be special in some ways. So I'll, I'll take it. But uh, how do you see the position of Secretary of the State uh, evolving? As new challenges seem seem to be popping up on a daily basis, um, are, are are there going to be more more uh, a, a different role for the position to play? Do you think in, in the in the future? I think, um, you know, Secretary Merrill was always very involved on the national scene. That is something I would definitely continue because I believe many of the challenges that are popping up are shared by everyone. Cybersecurity is a real threat. Um, misinformation is a real threat. Um, so you see the National Association of Secretaries of the State, which you know, have secretaries of all parties. Um, they have subcommittees, they meet regularly. I definitely think um, that is one way to make sure that we are all adhering to best practices. Um, I also think um, I am the first candidate, should I be elected in a while, that doesn't have a long um, legislative resume or political resume, if you will. 
um, which I think is a good thing because I tend to think like an entrepreneur, a business owner, where you know you move quickly. Um, you sort of figure out the most cost-effective way to get things done. And it's, it's just a different way of thinking compared to a legislative process. Um, so I think just being nimble is one of the biggest changes um, that will um, crop up with the role. Um, and because I've not been in politics, uh, for a long time, I also don't have this concept of historical precedent. Um, but I've been involved long enough to know you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. <laughs> so, um, I, I, I think it's a good mix. Um, so I think there's a lot that position can do just because the world has changed, uh, with COVID, um, technology always moves the world forward in many ways. Um, so I'm excited to bring hopefully a new approach and a new direction um, should things go my way on November 8th. <laughs> Great. Before we go, if you wanted our listeners to walk away from this interview focusing on just one thing, what's the most important thing? Uh, what, what should that be? The most important thing is to vote on November 8th, like you said, um, believe everyone should vote regardless of party. Um, and I would remind people to vote in every single election because they are all equally as important and then continue to engage. Um, I, I really do think we do ourselves a disservice as a nation to focus on civic responsibility just one day, election day. There are 364 other days of the year where you have to back up your vote, so to speak, with civic engagement. Um, and then I would just say, leave people with, if you want to learn more about me or get more involved with my campaign, go to votestephaniethomas.com votestephaniethomas.com. And um, I'd be happy to answer any questions or uh, learn more from you directly. So, and thank you, Jesse, for the time. <laughs> yeah, this, this has been my first uh, chance to chat with you and it's been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate your time. Uh, just all the information you're able to share with our listeners and I wish you nothing but luck uh, this fall. I know we're going to, we're going to get it done. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm looking forward. Pedal to the metal and have a good day. See what I mean? Stephanie is fantastic. And thank you for that talk with her. And if you want me to be a little less diplomatic than I was earlier on in this podcast, I can say if you look at the people, specifically the Republicans who are running for similar roles throughout the country, they're not running on the same things that Stephanie Thomas is. Uh, she wants everybody to vote, as you heard, regardless of political party. And we need more of that in this country. We can't have people who are focused on their side winning, regardless of what the truth is. Uh, and Stephanie's opponent is, you know, if you see any of these articles around the country of like election deniers running for uh, important offices, Stephanie's opponent is listed on those things in Bloomberg, in uh, the New Yorker and other, in other, you know, sort of major uh, uh, media organizations. They're fully aware that her opponent is um, among the, the most radical Secretary of State candidates running in the country right here in Connecticut. So and very important to get out there. That stuff might fly in some other states, but this is Connecticut and we don't let that stuff go here. Absolutely not. So uh, if you want to get involved to help Stephanie Thomas or to help Governor Lamont or to help your local uh, state rep and state Senate candidates, it's very easy. Check out mobilize.us. 
And if you throw on slash CT Dems, it'll be specific to Connecticut um, and find out lots of opportunities to go to everything from meet and greets to uh, campaign events. A lot of local DTCs, Democratic town committees are now opening their headquarters in your town. Find out where those are. Um, it's just a opportunity after opportunity to help out and we'd love for you to do so. Well, thanks again for the opportunity to talk to Stephanie Thomas. Uh, we're going to keep on fighting the good fight. And I know this November we're going to be victorious. We'll see. We'll see. Only if you guys get out and vote. So do it and tell your friends. And tune in next week to another edition of Connecticut's, the CT Dems podcast. Mm -hmm.